0: Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to christchurchlondon.org. Good holiday weekend so far. Great. I'm glad to hear it. Um, I'm here to give you the latest talk in our Encounters with Jesus series. And all through this series, we've been talking about the universal human needs, the things that everybody from all backgrounds seems to carry around with us, these sorts of aches and longings that seem to define the human experience. Last week, we were talking about the need for freedom. We've been talking about the need for acceptance and belonging. This week, I've got something of a controversial one. It goes by a number of different names. And we call it the need to be part of something bigger than yourself. Right, so um, there are some that say that it's a bit sort of pointless or weak or arrogant to assume that life is about more than just getting your immediate stuff done, that your life could have some sort of significance in a, a bigger picture or be part of a bigger story. Uh, In the opening to a book called The Meaning of Life by the School of Life, good people to go to for The Meaning of Life, um, they say, they admit, to wonder too openly or intensely about the meaning of life seems like a peculiar, (laughs) ill-fated, and even faintly ridiculous pastime. It isn't anything an ordinary mortal should be doing or would get very far by doing. It seems like a waste of time to think about the meaning of life, because there's important things to do. We've all got to-do lists and things to tick off, and if we sit around philosophizing all day long, we'll never get anything done. But I feel like this Calvin and Hobbes comic strip sometimes. There's uh, this beautiful comic. I don't know if you can see it. You can sort of see it. There's a teacher in a classroom who's talking to her class, and she says, ''Okay, are there any questions?'' And Calvin, who's this little six-year-old existentialist, puts his hand up and says, ''I've got a question.'' I want to know about the, the meaning of life. What's the meaning of human existence? And his teacher says, Calvin, come on, I meant about what we're going to do now. And Calvin says, frankly, I'd like to have the issue resolved before I expend any more energy on this. I feel like that sometimes, you know, I feel that, Calvin. You know, on the central line to work every Monday, I think, you know, maybe I need to be reminded again of the meaning of human existence because this feels, this feels like a pain. And um, the, uh, But this question, it seems to be dismissed too easily, but it seems to follow us around like a stone in our shoe, always expressing itself. I don't know if anyone watched this TV series recently called Search Party. It was about this sort of group of millennial hipsters in Brooklyn. It's a sort of comedy, and they're all sort of stuck in a bit of a malaise with their lives, stuck in dead-end jobs and, and boring relationships. And the lead character, Dory, is just finding that her life is turning out to be a bit of a disappointment, and she can't get the job that she wants, and her boyfriend seems to be unappreciative, and uh, life just seems like a, a continuous cycle of Instagram and brunch. Maybe you know how it feels. And the... <laughs> <laughs> and she, uh, one day, everything changes, because she hears that one of her friends from university has gone missing, this girl that she sort of knew a bit, and she becomes an amateur detective, And all of a sudden, she has this purpose to live for, something to offer. And she goes off on this big adventure trying to find this girl. But as the series goes on, it becomes clear that the girl is just hiding. She's not missing. She's just just had a a bit of a freak out and gone, gone on holiday. And the girl who's looking for her is really looking for something to do with her time. It's the sort of sense that we have that we all need to validate ourselves by contributing something. We feel like we should have something to offer. The film Fight Club puts it like this. We're the middle children of history, man. No purpose or place. We have no great war, no great depression. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars, but we won't, and we're slowly learning that fact. Living with a sense of meaning seems like it's all very well and good for the rich, and the movie stars, and the very clever, and the artistic. But what about for us, the the ordinary people? Do our lives mean anything? I feel that if we have this sense of innate longing for something more than what we seem to be offered, I feel like we've been made to look for it, that God has built this into us to look for him. One of the beautiful things about Christianity is it tells you that every life is precious, that God has deliberately and purposefully made you, and that you have something to offer, that you uh, have something to contribute. I guess the big question is, what is it? In 1646, a group of English and Scottish theologians thought they'd crack it once and for all, and so they got together and produced a document called the Westminster Shorter Catechism, as opposed to the longer one, which is too long. It's a long statement of all the things that Christians believe to be true, and it's become very famous for this one statement. It says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So I was talking with my friend about this, uh, this talk during the week, uh, and he asked me what I was going to talk about, and I sort of fumbled my way through up to this bit and you know, got to the bit about glorifying God, and that's the, the big sort of reveal. And he said... Well, one of the problems that he has with Christianity and with religion in general is that it seems to stop you from doing anything useful, teaches you that the purpose of your life is to pray to this God, and then in the meantime, the world is full of problems and pain and you don't seem to do anything about it because you're sitting in this church praying instead of going out there and and helping. And I sort of thought about that, and I thought it was an interesting, interesting challenge. I can sort of see his point, in a way many of us, if God does want us to just withdraw ourselves, and that to glorify God means to separate ourselves and sing our songs while everyone else suffers, then that does seem like a waste. But what I think is that with glorifying God might be bigger than, than we think. And I think today's passage, which Lauren read very beautifully, thank you, um, might shed a little bit of light on it. It's a story of two people who knew Jesus well but responded to him ultimately in different ways. And we're at this meal. It's, taken a couple of we- it's taking place a couple of weeks after something pretty catas- like cataclysmic has happened. Lazarus, who is one of the guests at the meal, was dead. And uh, his sisters, Mary and Martha, had been trying to get in touch with Jesus to get him to come back before he died to try and cure him from the illness that was uh, killing him. And Jesus didn't make it in time, and Lazarus died. Then Jesus came back after Lazarus was died. After they'd had the funeral, after Lazarus was in the grave, and he sits, he stands, and he uh, cries first. And that's where the phrase "Jesus wept" came from. It's the two. It's just the shortest, shortest little verse in the New Testament. And then he calls Lazarus out of the grave, and he comes back to life tonight they're throwing him a party to say thank you and it's just taking place a sort of crescendo in the life of Jesus in a week's time Jesus will be on the cross uh, Judas who is we're going to talk about in a minute will be dead and the whole of the movement will be just thrown into uh, disarray at this so at this party we've got we've got Jesus in the guest of honor position it's at a chief religious leader's house. Everyone is there. Lots of people of uh, power and, and influence are there. Anyone who's, anyone who's come to this party. Mary and Martha are there. Martha is making the food. Mary is sitting with Jesus. And outside the house is this growing crowd. A crowd of people who have come to see what all the fuss is about. See this Lazarus who was dead and now is alive. And see this Jesus who apparently did it into the middle of all of this, Mary comes with a big jar of perfume, a very expensive thing, and pours it over Jesus' feet, and then washes it off with her hair, which is a really like, out there thing to do at a party. And Judas, there's a, I guess there's an awkward silence at that moment, you know, you'd expect. And then Judas pipes up from the back, Well, wow, that was a waste of money. Jesus' response is surprising. I mean you think you look at the facts and it kind of does seem like a waste of money that if you were to sell that and give it to the poor that would be a good thing to do and that would seem to glorify God more than simply pouring it over his feet a person who seems to be in the wrong Jesus says is in the right the same person who seems to be in the right Jesus seems to think is in the wrong so it strikes you that what God wants from us the big question that what God made made us for might be different to what we expect uh, Francis Bufford's book, Unapologetic, puts it like this, God doesn't want your careful virtue, he wants your reckless generosity. I've really fallen in love with this phrase. Um, and so I've put, put, built this whole talk around uh, these two phrases. I've been thinking about reckless generosity, what it is, what it looks like, why God might want it, and how it might just change the world. So, reckless generosity... What's the difference between careful virtue and reckless generosity? Well, one, careful virtue is looking for what it can get. Reckless generosity okay, reckless generosity is looking for what it can give. So Mary's perfume is really expensive. It's worth a year's wages. In Tower Hamlets, a year's wages, according to the Office of National Statistics in 2015, was £44,947. I mean, that seems unrealistic to me, but... Canary Wharf. <laughs> Canary Wharf. <laughs> evens it up but to pour 45 grams worth of, of perfume all on Jesus's feet just in 10 seconds and then that's not enough she gets down on her feet and gets her hair and cleans it off with her hair dries her feet I mean that's not an efficient way to dry feet that's not an efficient way you should use a towel Mary use a towel but what does it mean right hair is 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 a symbolic act okay the hair is uh, the most precious part of the body in, in New Testament thought, and you know in modern thought too. My wife cuts my hair. I'm not allowed to cut my wife's hair. It's uh, <laughs> and I've offered. I've offered. Hair is precious. When Mary gets down on her hands and feet and wipes Jesus's uh, wipes Jesus's feet with her hair, she's saying the worst of me, the best of me, I can give to the worst of you. The most you can have everything of me. Reckless generosity is, about, is reckless because it requires you to give away more than just material possessions. Worship isn't expensive because of the price of the equipment you use to do it. It's expensive because it requires you to give yourself. It's, the possessions are just a, a symptom of a heart that's already been given away. Because if you've given your heart to Jesus, what's money? Judas, on the other hand, is trying to conceal his heart from everyone. We know this because John tells us that the last thing in, in Judas's heart, despite what he says, is the poor. It's an attempt to criticise another person in order to appear generous when what's going on inside is actually very different. Judas seems to be in love with money. The, um, the money has been seen in Jesus' teachings as a, a way to understand what it is that you truly love. Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Mary, clearly in giving away her money so free, freely, is clearly easy, is happy to invest her heart. But Judas, in keeping his money to himself, is concealing his heart to other people. It's an interesting response to, Jesus that, to Judas that Jesus makes. He says, leave her alone, the poor will always be among you, but you will not always have me. And I just wanted to make a side note about this. It seems like Jesus is saying, hey, Judas, don't worry about the poor people. They're always going to be around. If uh, you've got money, spend it on me. And actually, I think I've heard that that interpretation being used before, that the poor are always going to be here, so don't worry about it. If you dig a little bit deeper, though, what Jesus is actually saying is a little bit different. He's quoting something to Judas. He's saying it's from Deuteronomy 15, God's law to his people. The verse is, there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. So Deuteronomy is the Old Testament law that God gave to his people. He said, this is what pleases me. And so the implication is that what pleases God is to look after the poor people, look after people who have less than you. So when Jesus is saying this to Judas, he's saying, listen, I know what you're getting at, but you don't actually care at all about the poor. What we're really talking about here is hypocrisy. Judas is speaking a good game, but when it gets expensive, he keeps his heart hidden. I mean, talking about feeding the poor costs nothing. But reckless generosity leads you to give all that you have. And it's hard to believe that Mary, who would give everything so freely, would then not be generous to everyone else in her life too. It's not just that one is a selfish act, as Judas says, and one is an efficient act, that Mary is being recklessly generous, and Judas shows careful virtue. Number two, it's a response. Reckless generosity is a response to God's kindness. Careful virtue is an attempt to make God respond to us. So this party, it seems like it was planned that Mary would come and do this Make this offering. It's not just that she was just, it was a crazy party and things got out of hand and she chucked the perfume about. She brought it out. Think about like what witnessing the resurrection of your own brother would do to your understanding of life and death. Your brother was dead. You wrapped him up, you had a funeral, you were were mourning for him, and then all of a sudden he's alive and back with you and eating with you. It's crazy. Like, think about that. That's mind blowing. Think about the implications of that as well, that Jesus would call someone out of the grave after saying that he is the resurrection, that he is new life. Mary was beginning to understand who Jesus was, the power that he had. And when you think about that, you think that Jesus has power over death, and that's what the, invitation, that's what the miracle invites us to believe. What is money to Jesus? Why would you, I mean, what are you going to give him? He's really literally got everything. He made it. Like Romans says, for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. When you realise that Jesus is God, who makes stars the the millions of times the size of our son, who creates life, who literally sustains your every breath, what are you going to give him? You can't really do anything. All you can do is respond to him. And when you think that Jesus would come and then, having made all things and had all things made through him, would then come and die on the cross for us and take the sin of the world away on his shoulders. Really, there's no response that is adequate for that. You can't pay it back. And yet, God seems to want our generosity. And in the face of such generosity, how can you not be generous back? The story of Judas should scare us, really, because Judas spent so much time with Jesus, saw all the same stuff that Mary did. He was there at Lazarus's resurrection, he was there at the feeding of the 5,000, and yet didn't seem to affect him in the same way. He saw the pouring out of the perfume and thought it was a waste, because he could have had the money, and then later, two weeks later, he'll be selling out Jesus for far less. He He was hoping to get a year's wages, and in the end, he sold him for 30 pieces of silver which is like less than a thousand pounds it seems like you could spend a lot of time with Jesus and still not get it the story of the chief priest should scare us too these people at the window thinking that this was dangerous and that they should put a stop to it how can people who spent their whole life studying the word and teaching God's laws see a man raised from the dead and think this is a threat to people's behavior we We'd better kill him Judas and the chief priests ended up destroying the things that they should have been falling in love with. Instead of responding to God, they tried to control him. And sometimes we try and keep our God at arm's length. Sometimes we have a view of God that is small and that is there just to be useful to us. We feel like God is sitting back watching us, waiting to be impressed and giving out rewards or punishments as he feels necessary. I wonder if that's how the chief priests were feeling. They loved their rules and they felt under threat by them, by this new way of thinking. Ephesians 5, 2 says, mostly what God does is love you. Keep company with him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious, but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but in order to give everything of himself to us. Love like that, Judas spent so much time with Jesus you would think that he would just just by being around would just get what this was all about but his heart reveals that he didn't. Mary on the other hand responded to God. She didn't do it in a particularly excellent way there's nothing particularly impressive about it but she impressed Jesus. The idea that you could impress Jesus is fantastic. In the Matthew version of this story, Jesus said, this is amazing, She's going to be, this is going to be spoken about for the whole, of, the whole of eternity. Jesus loves it when we pour our hearts out to him. It's uh, an amazing thing to think that you could impress the, the God of everything. But the things that impress Jesus are not the same, necessarily the same things that impress God. That's another way that this kind of generosity is reckless. This is my third point. Careful virtue lives to impress people. Reckless generosity is brave enough not to. Mary has to cross a lot of boundaries to do her act of worship. This might have been planned, but it's still seriously awkward. You notice that Mary comes to the table to do this, to pour this perfume. And as a woman, that's not where she would have been expected to be at that time. That's a social boundary she's crossing. It's a crowd, it's super public, and not all of the people in that crowd are friendly either. Some of them are literally trying to kill the guests. Imagine being Mary in that moment. She's doing it in front of everyone. There's no hiding. And then it's so intimate too. Not just does she hallow God in this, sort of exalt Jesus in this way, but then to get down and put her head to his feet, that would require you to get so close to his feet. That's a real position of vulnerability. And I guess (laughs) worship requires us to be a little bit vulnerable sometimes doesn't it to put yourself out there and to be in a a public place and to be seen and when you are in that most vulnerable place the fear of course is that someone will see you and criticize the fear is is of, of Judas the criticism is not what it appears Judas isn't really thinking about Mary he's just trying to divert attention from himself Recently, psychologists did an experiment in America to find out why people are so easily morally outraged on social media. They gathered a few hundred people and they split them into two groups, and each group was presented with a made-up news article about climate change. Now, one of these groups, they primed them in the article to make it seem like climate change was their fault. They dropped in little hints about products they knew they used, they talked about their country, they talked about the policies of their government. The idea was that you would feel guilty after reading it. The other group read that someone else was to blame. The group, after, after they to each uh, group had read the articles, they were then tested and asked questions about their guilt and about their desire for punishment for other people. Uh, according to the survey, they found three things that are very interesting. When people feel, felt personal guilt for a problem, they were more likely to show increased moral outrage at another target, and it actually helped them to feel less guilty if they could tell someone else off. The more guilt we feel, the more desire we have to criticize someone else. I don't know about you, but when I'm driving, that's definitely true. If I go, if I make a little mistake, and I'm feeling a little bad about it, and then someone else makes a mistake, I'll be like, you, that is dangerous, man. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a coincidence that the loudest critical voice in the room at the party was also the person who had the most to feel guilty about. So we need to be careful about our criticism. It can be a dangerous and damaging thing. Where's it coming from? Is it coming from a good place? Is it constructive? Is it for the benefit of the person we're speaking it to? Or are we simply trying to just make someone else feel bad to make ourselves feel better? We also need to think about how we respond to criticism too. Um, Brene Brown does this brilliant talk about uh, how to deal with critics. Um, She is a researcher, she wrote a couple of really great books, and she's done a couple of TED Talks that became very, very famous. Um, And she kind of overnight went from being sort of totally unknown to being really well-known. And all of her friends and family said, whatever you do, don't read the comments on YouTube, Just, just don't do it. And as you can probably imagine, she couldn't resist it, so she did. And it wasn't a nice experience. A lot of the comments were not about her work, not about her talk, but about her, about her family, about her appearance. Just the worst things that you could imagine. Just the sort of things that would stop you from doing anything in public. And she says an amazing thing. She actually became very depressed after reading it. And, um, and it took her a while to work herself out of it. But she gives a great talk about how to respond to criticism. Because what do you do when someone criticizes you? Do you withdraw and stop doing the thing that you were going to do? Do you keep doing it all the louder to annoy them? She actually says this. Mm -mm -mm -mm. When we stop caring about what other people think, we lose our capacity for connection but when we become defined by what people think, we lose our willingness to be vulnerable. Here's the thing. We don't have a choice whether or not criticism will come our way. It will. But if we, we do have a choice by what we're defined by, Jesus is so quick to defend Mary because he knows how fragile this moment is. It's a beautiful thing that she's doing, and she has to be so brave to do it. Judas really has nothing in the, in the game, but he says it's inappropriate, irrational, incorrect. Jesus says it's amazing, it's overwhelming, it's going to be talked about forever. The problem is, sometimes we're quicker to listen to Judas than we are to listen to Jesus. We worry about what the Judas will say about us, about how wrong we were, about what we do. We, sometimes that can hold us back. I wonder if you know the feeling of being worried about what people would say when Jesus has asked you to do something. It's not the kind of performance, Mary's performance, that impressed people. Most people in the room didn't get it. But in its reckless generosity, it became far bigger than something Mary could have imagined. The smell of the perfume filled the house. And this is the thing. You've got to be... When you really pour your heart out in worship, it becomes, God uses it and exalts it and becomes bigger than you ever could have imagined. Makoto Fujimura who's an artist, uh, a Christian artist, he talks about this event and says, Mary transgressed cultural norms in this act of love, trembling in thanksgiving, knowing that the king must be anointed. In one act, she broke open the mystery of that moment. Her nard spread, and its aroma filled that room. Imagine being in that room. There's no avoiding the smell. You're just watching this thing unfold, And as Mary comes forward, this emotional pouring out, suddenly the whole room would be filled with this amazing, overpowering smell. Uh, My fourth point about (laughs) reckless generosity, careful virtue points at itself, but reckless generosity points at God. This this act that Mary carries out is loaded with symbolism. There's two reasons why people were anointed back in these days. One, it's a ritual for rulers coming into power. So it was like a coronation. If you poured, if you poured perfume over the head, it was sort of an act. as uh, you read in, in the Old Testament about King David becoming king. They poured, they poured oil over his head, and he was uh, chosen, it represented that he was chosen by God as king. The other reason is, of course, uh, as some, when someone died, you would cover them in this, in this perfume to stop the body from smelling. Mary, by pouring her perfume over this ordinary-looking guy, uh, the the Bible says that Jesus really had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Jesus was an ordinary-looking person. As she poured it over him, she declared to to everyone around that he was king. I... The other thing that she told them is that she began to say that to prophesy in a way, to say what would be happening in the next week. That as she poured this nard that was used for dead bodies over Jesus, she was speaking about his death, speaking about how it would be used for his that God was going to kill him. It was sort of a a double-sided message that both he was uh, that God was king and both and going to die. It's kind of an amazing picture, this sort of extravagant pouring out. We're talking about as you, as you pour out this expensive perfume over Jesus and everyone smells it, everyone is brought into contact with the beauty and the extravagance of God. Judas, on the other hand, can't see past the details. The, the chief priest, uh, Judas, just sees a chance to uh, make money. He sees a, a chance for him to steal steal more from the money bag that he loves so much there's a line from the film amelie says the fool looks at the finger that points at the sky mary is pointing at the sky in this message she's saying that this is something this is something earth-shaking something big that god is here among us judas just ends up looking at the finger sees the woman criticizes her sees nothing of the meaning and how often do we do the same thing get hung up on different styles of singing, different instruments, different church, different ways of worshipping. But if we were to focus instead on the God that our worship points to, we might find something far more powerful. I want to talk about some recklessly generous people. I have a friend called Donald, maybe he's here, he might not be here. I have a friend called Donald who has been making for years, throwing these three-course banquets for homeless people. Uh, he get, all these people come in, he gathers them in, inv- invites them, and they sit down and they have amazing food. And it's three courses, and people sit down and eat and laugh and share with them. And it's extravagant. It's a kind of expensive thing to do. And you could say to Donald and, his, and the charity that runs it, you could say, well, you'd feed a lot more people if you just did the one course. Just do soup, line people up you get through more people. But something about the three courses and the sitting down and the care and the cutlery and the love that is poured into it speaks of who God is, speaks of the the time and the kindness that he gives to us. Uh, Makoto Fujimura, who's an artist who I quoted earlier, is an abstract expressionist who paints these enormous paintings using an ancient Japanese technique called Nihonga. And he describes this process as pursuing God's grace by the act of painting. His materials are extravagant. He uses gold and platinum and silver, hand-lifted paper and silk, and 100-year-old Sumi ink, all to express something of the God who is lavish in his grace. Again, you could say to Makoto, well, could you not just do a PowerPoint slide or something? Just just say what you're saying, just write it down on a piece of paper. But it's something about standing in front of these paintings, seeing the gold and the materials, that speaks to you of a God that is extravagant, of a God that is over everything. We all have our perfume to pour. Maybe God is speaking to you today. Could the man come back, please? I just, um, yeah, as I was preparing for this, I just felt like God wanted to encourage those of us who are wondering about what, what we're going to do with our lives and what it will all be, to have a look at what God has given you and to start off in the heart with coming back to a generous God and giving him your heart. I just um, feel like, yeah, God is wanting to meet with us tonight. That God wants to show us again. If we've made him about rules and we've made him about trying to follow very strict codes of behaviors to please him, I think God wants to remind us that there's nothing we can do to please him more, that he owns everything that he's made everything, that he's done everything necessary for us to come to him, that he's extravagant and that he's pleased and he's excited to be here. Let's start with that. Let's respond from that. And um, yeah, maybe as we're worshipping tonight or as we we pray, maybe you want to come uh, just take an opportunity to, to re-meet with God, to pray to God to reveal himself to you afresh. And maybe if things are starting to feel stale, maybe to pray that he would pour into you his presence and and to just draw him closer to the truth of who he is. Maybe you've never thought of God in that way at all. Maybe you've always understood him as a sort of church-bound judge. Maybe you'd like to find out more about him. Maybe it's time for you to go public and do something that's going to take vulnerability that your fear of people criticising you has stopped you from doing. Maybe it's time to get baptised or to tell someone about the faith journey you're on. There's real power, I hope we've seen, in the the expressing your faith publicly. But for now, we're going to sing some songs. And by the the generosity that we show to God in this place, may it flow out into the other areas of our life. May it fill the atmosphere of this room until every part of you is filled with the presence of his his glory. Um, Let's pray. Let's stand and pray. Thank you, Father, that you are here. Thank you that you are so good to us. Thank you that you are sustaining us, that you have made us, that you have a plan for everyone in this room. Father, thank you that you are perfect. I just thank you for the extravagance with which you love us. I just pray that right now as we worship you, that we would find that we are reconnecting with you I pray that we would understand you in new ways and lord that you would show us what you want us to do show us what you want where you want us to pour out the perfume that you've given us and i pray that as we worship you here tonight it would change the atmosphere of this place Amen. thank you for listening for more information or for further podcasts and downloads please visit ChristchurchLondon.org